I'm Katya. And I'm Rin. And we're here at the Commonwealth Center for Holistic Herbalism in Boston, Massachusetts. And on the internet, everywhere, thanks to the power of the podcast. Woohoo! Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, this week, our topic is Don't Let the Perfect Be the Enemy of the Good. And uh, the very closely following on that related statement, don't let the unfamiliar be the enemy of learning something new. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. In herbalism. Yes, in herbalism. Well, yeah. actually, anytime. In a lot of things. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but before we dig into that, uh, that the this idea of challenging what we think is the perfect way to do things, uh, we want to tell you... That we are not doctors. We are herbalists and holistic health educators. The ideas we discuss in our podcasts do not constitute medical advice. No state or federal authority licenses herbalists here in the United States, where we live. Uh, So, you know, these discussions are for educational purposes only. Everyone's body is different, so the things we're talking about may or may not apply directly to you, but they will give you some information to think about and some ideas to research further. And we want to remind you that your good health is your own personal responsibility. The final decision in considering any course of therapy, whether it's discussed on the internet or prescribed by your physician, is always yours. Yeah. All right. So uh, why don't you tell us what brought this topic to mind this week? Well, I posted a video on Facebook this week showing how to make elderberry syrup using sugar. And holy cow, y'all, the internet exploded. Like, in less than an hour, there were about 100 jeering comments about how terrible I am that I would ever consider using sugar, and don't I know that it should be local raw honey? And needless to say, I took the video down, and I will spare you my frustration at the Lord of the Flies pit of despair that Facebook is, but (laughs) it did make me realize that I really want to talk about things that can surprise you in herbalism and in human health. And I also want to talk a little bit about dogma and sort of getting stuck with the first thing that we heard and then thinking that's the only way to do things or getting stuck on what we think is ideal and then letting that cloud our ability to be creative and adaptive um, in other situations or to even see why there might be a reason to do something differently than our usual way of doing things. Yeah. Right. So there may be a perfect way to make elderberry syrup. And, uh, <laughs> it may not involve sugar, but uh, you can't always do it that way. Or there might be reasons why you don't want to or why you have reasons not to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, specifically about this, the reason that it's really actually important to make, um, to learn how to make a sugar syrup, even though I myself hate using sugar and I almost never do it. Right. And, you know, I mean, it was funny with the <clears throat> the complaints and everything um, because like last week and for most of the previous month, we had a bunch of different uh, videos up there about a number of different ways to make elderberry uh, uh, syrups and to start with the dried berries and make a decoction and to start with fresh berries and infuse the honey and to do it yeah. this way and that way and the other way. And this was sort of like, oh, yeah, right. And you can do it with sugar as well. Yeah. But like suddenly as if these people had no like whatever. They hadn't seen the other ones, you know, and they, they saw this and they felt like they had to speak up about it. And OK, you know, so <laughs> you do. Right. And I, too, I, too, do not like making syrup with sugar. Given my preference, I do not do it that way. I make it with honey myself. That's what I do. But sometimes you're in an austere environment where you can't refrigerate anything 
And you also can't use alcohol for reasons, maybe because the local community um, doesn't work with alcohol, maybe because there's religious reasons or health reasons to avoid it, Yeah, whatever. And these two methods would be the way that if you made your elderberry syrup only working with honey, or if you made it, um, you know, uh, yeah, if you made it only with honey, you would need to refrigerate it, or you would need to combine it together with some alcohol in order to make it an elixir, really, yeah. um, at which point it would be shelf-stable. And it, if all these uh, methods are not familiar to you, then we've got a course for that. <laughs> we have <laughs> yes. a whole course all about elderberry and elderflowers as mm-hmm. well, um, and it goes into all of the methods that we've ever uh, worked with ourselves mm-hmm. to uh, create those things. And, you know, somebody even pointed out, well, I still think you're wrong because I don't refrigerate my elderberry honey-infused syrup well, I don't either, actually. Like, here at home, that isn't true. Here at home, I don't refrigerate the first bottle of it, and I do refrigerate the subsequent bottles of it. If I am go- if I know I'm going to go through it really fast, um, like, the very first bottle, yeah, we're going to use that up in less than a month. So, yeah, sometimes I also don't refrigerate my honey. Like, there's a lot of ways to say, well, you would never need to do that because this. You would never need to do that because that. But the reality is you don't know what you would never need to do. You just don't know. And so so there are some times um, that, it, and also, you know, in New England here, it's cold right now. So for me to not refrigerate the first batch of the elderberry-infused honey, that's fine. It's not hot. But if I were in Louisiana... Right. Yeah, it's November 1st. We haven't turned the heat on here yet. You know, <laughs> it's been, uh, yeah, it's been good. Um, so anyway, um, that is to make a syrup with sugar is a way to guarantee that it is shelf stable, that you won't have to refrigerate it. And by the way, that particular video demonstrated the method using powdered sugar instead of granulated sugar. And Facebook freaked out about that too. But powdered sugar is the same as granulated sugar. It's just ground up more finely. And using powdered sugar does make the whole process easier because it dissolves a lot faster. Hmm. Regardless. Yeah. Uh, in this context, making a sugar syrup, the amount of sugar that you consume in a dose uh, is reasonably small. I mean, yes, it's sugar and sugar is bad and it suppresses immune function and whatever else. But it's not two ounces of sugar. And it's not two ounces of pure sugar, right? Right. Like there are... There are it's true. There are issues with uh, consuming sugary substances when you are sick or when you could be about to catch something. And, uh, you know, we're the first people to say that if you consume two ounces of sugar, then your immune system function can be suppressed by 40% for up to four hours afterwards. Yep. And we like to remind people about that because many people aren't aware that they uh, are suppressing their immune system chronically all day, every day. <laughs> right. right. And so we want to we want to be aware of that. Uh, but but there's, a, t- there's a pretty big difference between a can of coke and a shot of elderberry syrup even if it's made with sugar right right because of the elderberry (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah and even if you took an entire two ounces of elderberry syrup it's not two ounces of sugar Mm -mm. it's like you said and you wouldn't take two ounces in one sitting of elderberry syrup anyway right right that's you know you would take a a large dose might be half an ounce sure you know yeah yeah. and that's not going to be entirely sugar maybe half of that is sugar generously I mean, so yeah. okay that's we could, a we could do the math right we could measure how much sugar we put in and then we could say how much water there is and we could work it all out and say you know we could do that but it would come out to be not very much right and the the reason to go through the bother of all that nitpickiness 
is because because we've heard so many times sugar suppresses immune function and to really be to really sit down and think okay critically how much sugar am i actually consuming it's not indiscriminately you can never have any sugar at all or you're going to die that would be a serious problem because you can't consume basically almost anything without having some amount of sugar in it i right. mean there are <clears throat> believe it or not there are some sugars in meat Right? Mm. There are, they're called meat sugars. Like they exist in um, <laughs> I the, love it when scientific terms are like... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's handy. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, there's there's not a... it's Yeah, there's a threshold effect going on here, right? Yeah. Um, okay. So, anyway, so not to get all caught up as like, okay, well, I had to make this elderberry syrup with sugar, and now every time I take it, I think, oh, no, but I'm hurting myself with the... Like, it's a very small amount of sugar. Yeah, and, you know, what's what I think is going on for a lot of these folks is that they've learned that, yeah, sugar suppresses immune function, and they say, oh, okay, I want to avoid that. And that's that's true, and that's realistic, and that's a good idea. But now they're applying that maxim universally and without... And sort without, of indiscriminately. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so, okay, with that set up, I wanted to talk about some surprising things that you might not know about sugar, actually. Um, and so the first one is that in this particular context of the elderberry syrup, it's nice to note that um, a little bit of sugar can actually be very helpful for a sore throat because it stimulates the mucosal lining in the throat and causes um, a, a reaction that ultimately is soothing, right? It stimulates production of mucus. And if you have a dry, sore throat, then you want some production of mucus and a little bit of sugar can do that. Um, That's part of the reason that cough drops have sugar in them. Uh, Another part of the reason is, of course, as a preservative. And another part of the reason is that people will enjoy the cough drop more if it's sweet. Mm. But, you know, those those reasons don't need to not be there for there to be actually some medicinal value in the sugar. Mm Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, you know, sugar has these other applications as well, right? So, you know, when you said a moment ago that part of the the reason for sugar in the cough drops is to preserve them, uh, that's because, you know, we understand that bacteria want to have something to eat and that they they like it if you eat a lot of sugar because that will, again, suppress your immune function Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe give them some extra free-floating sugars in your body for them to access, and that's great. But if you just have a bowl of sugar, you don't need to refrigerate it yeah you don't need to spray it with lysol right nothing grows in a bowl of sugar yeah and um this is one of the aspects of sugar that's sometimes a little bit surprising is that um it can actually prevent the growth or the proliferation of microbes it can even kill them off on contact we have a friend um sam kaufman he runs a school in texas called the human path um, and he once told a joke um, where he caught, he referred to sugar as pharmaceutical grade sucrose. And that actually still totally cracks me up. Like, because it's funny and it's true um, that that sugar has this capacity to kill pathogens, to kill bacteria, to kill things that would like to get in and live in you. So in the absence of honey, and there are times when you don't have honey available, um, you can absolutely use sugar to sterilize a wound. Um, and plus, <clears throat> so let's say that it's an, a post-disaster situation, right? And there isn't very much honey available just because there isn't. Mm. 
But everybody, you guys, even I, have a bag of sugar in the house. Like, really? Yeah, we do. Oh, wow. We do. It's not very much, but we do. It's, it's left over, over from yeah. when I was making the videos of how to make the elderberry oh, syrup. Yeah. <laughs> I needed to buy some sugar to make it right. so I could demonstrate that. Yeah. But, but like... <laughs> Almost every household, even households where they try to avoid sugar, almost every household has a bag of sugar. So let's imagine that you're in a post-disaster situation and you're pooling your resources um, and you don't have much in the way of honey as a community and you're thinking, uh, okay, what can I, what can, what do I have available that can be used to sterilize wound and your wounds and you're cataloging all of your materials Sugar works just the same way as, or very similarly to honey, to do that antibacterial, antimicrobe action in a wound. Yeah, I actually found a study uh, comparing them. Um, so it's effects of honey and sugar on wound healing uh, from the Journal of Wound Care, and this was published in 2007. <clears throat> um, and basically what they were doing was they took people who had open or infected wounds and were in the hospital and they were measuring um, how many bacteria were growing in there, how big the wound was, um, and a couple of other measures. Uh, so the, they had one group get honey and one group get sugar uh, right onto the wounds and then you know wrapped up and covered and all of that kind of stuff. And uh, the numbers that came out were pretty similar. Um, so in, in one group, the group that got the honey, about 55% of the patients had, um, they had bacteria growing in their wounds at the beginning of treatment, and that was reduced down to 23% of them after a week. Whereas with sugar, it had gone from 52% to 39%. So not as sharp of a decline, but in roughly the same ballpark, right? Um, and there were similar results in terms of like wound size um, and also in measurements of pain. So yes, honey is better. Absolutely. If you've got it and you've got enough of it to go around, mm -hmm. go with your honey every time. Uh, and, you know, of course, this was in a, a you know, a, a research hospital setting. So I'm sure it wasn't your your local, you know, propolis infused. Like, yeah, I'm sure high, it was sterilized. High test, awesome, you know, bee powered honey and all that. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, which is, again, even a marker in that favor. But still, uh, the results were pretty decent. Right. They were they were nearly comparable. And so, like you're saying, if there's an area or a situation where you have limited resources, then go with the sugar, right? Or even, you know, as you're cataloging your resources, then you reserve the honey for a more serious or more infected wound, and you use the sugar for wounds that are smaller or less serious or less infected. Um, and it, it's, just, it's just smart use of resources, right? So, again, recognizing that this action is available is going to drastically increase the tools that you have available to you at a time that you might need them. Uh, there are also a bunch of studies um, that have been done around sterilizing instruments <clears throat> with sugar when an autoclave is not available. I mean, obviously in the study an autoclave was available, but they were doing it for the purposes of <laughs> for the purposes of, of discovering the, the answer for when it wasn't available. Right, yeah. Um, so the studies done on the efficacy of this method are mixed. Uh, personally, if I had the option, I would much prefer to boil instruments um, over using sugar to sterilize them. Was this really just like get a bag of sugar and stick your scalpel into yes, it? Yes, absolutely. Uh -huh. Like wipe it off with a cloth and then stick it into the 
bin of sugar wow. and yeah. yeah um and you leave it there for, for oh, an yeah, amount of yeah, time of right you yeah. don't just like dip it in and dip it right out again like yeah. it will see it in there and the different studies did it for different amounts of time yeah and i'm sure we could also compare this to you know a bowl of salt and other yeah. things like that yeah. yeah absolutely um but the results the results were of mixed efficacy and i feel that boiling is more effective but they were effective yeah. You know, it wasn't as good as an autoclave. It wasn't as good as boiling, but it was definitively better than nothing, like <laughs> drastically better than nothing. And so let's say that boiling was not an option to me, either because we were very low on water or because we were very low on fuel with which to boil water. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at that point, I might be looking at if I had a stash of sugar um, especially because in this situation you can reuse that stash of sugar and you can only reuse boiling water until you've boiled it all off, um, then that that would definitely be something I'd be thinking about. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, sugar, we can think about it for other applications in this kind of post-disaster, austere emergency situation environment, um, like food, right? So if you're in one of those situations and, again, you're setting up your your clinic or your help space and you're thinking about what kind of resources you have and maybe there's some fruit and you're going to want to ration that and make sure everybody gets some not just today but over the next couple of weeks right you're going to need a way to preserve it um maybe you're in a hot environment maybe the fruit could go bad you know lots of things could could influence this but uh sugar is a great way to preserve fruit it does make them sugary yes but it will prevent bacteria from growing on them it will prevent them from rotting and um some fruit with some you know sugary syrup around it to, to preserve it is going to be better for you than no fruit yeah absolutely <laughs> and that might sound like kind of a contrived example but um if you like in the in the far rockaways in hurricane sandy it was five weeks before any government assistance arrived and that doesn't mean that there was no assistance there were lots of private um, you know, there was a ton of street medics from Occupy Wall Street went. Um, people from other places volunteered to go. But there was no government assistance. And so if you are in a place with a disaster and maybe lots of places are affected by that disaster, what is the likelihood that you're going to get help today or that you're going to get help next week or that you're going to get help for the next five weeks? And you may need to take stock of how much food is available in your community and figure out how you're going to make it last for that much time. Um, and since that is a real world example uh, that that like we saw, we, we it was it was real. It's not like well this could happen. No, this did happen. Mm. So using five weeks as your like time frame of how long you might need to hold out before you might be provided with any kind of assistance is a really reasonable number. And um, however many berries you might have available to provide vitamin C, uh, they're not going to last without some kind of preservative measure, especially if you are in a situation with no refrigeration and that was the case. Um, and you are in a situation with no other particular way to preserve things and that was the case. Right, right. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. And, you know, also, frankly, in an emergency situation, it is absolutely worth considering the impact of sugar on emotional stamina, right? We love sugar because it makes us feel good. And 
most of us in our everyday lives are working really hard to like turn that off and to or sit- to, to modulate it a little bit. Yeah. Right? You know, one of the things we we talk a lot about with um, with new students or when we're we're talking about digestion or other things. Um, or even about like the place herbs can have in our in our lives is about what we call bitter deficiency syndrome, and not just us, but lots of other herbalists <laughs> have, have called it this over the years. The idea that uh, because most of most humans running around out there aren't getting bitter foods and herbs into their lives generally, they've lost their tolerance for that flavor, and that comes together with a food environment in which there is a ton of sugar everywhere all the time, <laughs> and uh, people consume tons and tons of it. And these two factors serve to shift your your tolerance or your palate or like the balance point between bitter and sweet flavors where there are things that are really really sweet but uh you have something that's really 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 sweet and that kind of makes it so that the really sweet thing doesn't seem that sweet to you and that's especially the case if you also don't have bitter in your life at the same time so for so many of us the transition has been to introduce bitter, to reduce the amount of sugar we get, to reduce the type of sugar that we encounter so that it's not all high fructose corn syrup in water and fizz, mm. right? And that it's more like, well, yeah, there's a bit of honey in this almond flour cake that I made, or there's, you know, there's some sweetness to this elixir that I put together and I'm going to squirt that into my drink or my tea and I'm going to have it that way. So we're, we're changing our relationship to sweet and to sugar. Um, but again, none of this means that there's no place for it ever. And that uh, we should be uh, strict with ourselves to the point of avoiding anything that ever tastes sweet at all, right? We had a podcast well, a little while back about sweet herbs and about the different ways that herbs can be sweet and about the the kinds of effects that the sweet taste of, a, of an herb can indicate to you that it may have in your body or on your health when you work with it that way. Yeah. I think also that a lot of us are trying to deprogram ourselves from the comfort that comes from sugar, um, either because we are aware of it from a from a weight gain, weight loss type of a perspective, or because we are um, just trying to not comfort ourselves with food and not have that kind of relationship with food, and that's valid especially in the environment where sugar is available all of the time. But when everything is falling down around you, a small sweet treat um, can actually keep you going. That's part of why we crave it so much because in times of stress, the body is looking for fast and easy fuel. And frankly, sugar is the best option. But also in times of stress, that... Um, that endorphin reaction that we get of, oh, I'm eating something sweet and I have that food reward, that chemical food reward response that feels good in an emergency situation, we can, we can manipulate that response to help us to pick ourselves up and say, I can keep going, right? Yeah. It's great to not be reliant on that. It's great for that not to be the only way that we can achieve peace mm. or, or delight. Um, but that doesn't mean we have to issue it in all cases and all circumstances forever. Right. Also, when you're working with children in this kind of environment, then sometimes just a little bit of sugar can provide something familiar and soothing. It does not have to be much. Like you literally... Oh, there's a story in my family that um, gets told a lot about how when I was like, I don't know, I was a baby and I was at a, 
I some kind of a serious. I was going to say a funeral, but I don't think that's true. I was at some sort of serious family event where it was inappropriate for a baby to be crying, and uh, my aunt Beatrice uh, was holding me on her lap, and my mother was very young when she had me, and she wanted to have a healthy baby and like all that stuff, and I would not stop crying, and all of a sudden my aunt took my baby thumb, stuck it in her own mouth, stuck my thumb in the bowl of sugar that was sitting on the table because we were in some sort of a dining room arrangement and stuffed it in my mouth. And I shut right up. And my mother was horrified. And um, so hence this story gets told a lot. Uh, But I do think it's also a really great example that the rest of the story is not And then I proceeded to cry for the whole rest of the day until my aunt just kept doing that. That's not how the story went. That was the end of the story. I calmed down and I was fine after that. (laughs) And so, you know, like we can recognize in a situation where sugar is ubiquitous that that's a problem. But we can also recognize that this is a tool and there are appropriate uses for it. Mm. And we can use it when we need that. Yeah. So, you know, we've been talking about all these ways to, to work about or to, or to think about sugar in a disaster situation. And uh, I just want to mention real quick that we have a sale going on right now on our Emergent Responder Program, which is a comprehensive, no detail left unturned program with 68 hours of video as well as a bunch of reference information so that you can know confidently what to do in any kind of a disaster situation. Yeah, that sale was actually inspired by the Getty and Kincaid fires. Um, And so right now we're offering 50% off of the bundle price until Getty and Kincaid are contained. Um, Both of them are at about 60% containment right now. So you definitely still have a few days to get in on it. Um, You can use the coupon code Kincaid at checkout, which is K-I-N-C-A-D-E. Um, And you can know that the sale is still going on by just Googling Kincaid Fire Contained and the incident website in California will pop right up and it will tell you the percentage containment. Hmm. It's important to recognize that although we're hearing a lot about those two specific fires right now, there are a lot more. There are at least 14 uncontained wildfires in California alone right now. And, I mean, the Amazon is still on fire. There are wildfires burning on literally every continent right now at this very moment. Um, So, yeah, the point is that there just aren't enough first responders out there to help all of us, uh, you know, in a a one-on-one direct kind of way. They're doing (laughs) their best, right? Yeah. Um, But if we can get prepared, then we ourselves can become community responders, right? Yeah. We can be the confident force that organizes our own community and makes the difference between chaos and calm. So if it's a wildfire, if it's flooding, if it's a hurricane, a tornado, a monsoon, whatever it is, being prepared means that you don't have to be afraid. It can still be scary. Yeah. Of course. But if you have a sense of what to do, what your priorities are, uh, what are the most important things to focus on, then that gives you a lot more resilience, both mental and also, you know, through your preparations, physical. I sort of feel like a lot of people kind of worry, like, well, what would I do if that was me? Especially as we're thinking about the people in California whose lives are literally shrouded in smoke right now. Mm -hmm. And they have no idea, do they have a home? Do they not have a home? In the Kincaid fire so far, over 400 residences um, and businesses have been destroyed by the fire. 
And people who have been evacuated, over 200,000 people have been evacuated and they don't know. Is one of those their house? There's there, Actually, there are some ways to know. There are some maps and there is some data being disseminated, but not all of it can be up to date because the people who have that data are also busy fighting the fire. So the the point here is that we can worry about what would happen or what might happen to us. And we can look at climate change and say like, oh my God, what's going to happen to me? Or we can just be prepared for whatever happens and then not worry about it. I mean, it won't be fun hmm. if that happens, but if we know what to do, then we know what to do. Right. Yeah. And not worry about it doesn't mean don't think about it, don't act about it. Right? Yeah, it's just not have anxiety don't, about don't it. Don't organize or agitate about it, but yeah. Yeah. The anxiety, the worry that, that gets you down and gets you stuck, that doesn't help anybody, including you. <laughs> so, yeah. So that just wanted to make a little note on that one. And there there's links to it in the show notes. Yeah. Well, just because we kept saying in a disaster situation. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we were in, we in the health world, as we were talking about, we have so grasped onto the mantra that sugar is evil. And frankly, most of us still end up eating it from time to time anyway, even though we would prefer that people don't know. And like I told you, we have a bag of sugar in our house right now. Um, I have not stuck my thumb in it. (laughs) (laughs) But in that kind of a situation, we as humans are like doubly likely to be judgmental when people suggest sugar for something because we're also not wanting to have anybody judge us that we might not be living up to some kind of ideal. Yeah. I mean, it's a purity test situation, really. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's also a sign of our privilege, too, that we're able to be judgmental about a source of calories or a tool that might be available. Not everybody can afford local raw honey. And does that mean that they shouldn't get to have elderberry syrup? No. Like, if you go buy elderberry syrup in a store, it's like $24 for for six or eight ounces. Um, And that is way out of reach for a lot of people. But sugar is cheap, and there are some problems with that, but the reality is it's cheap. And if you can't have elderberries available that you can harvest yourself, then for very little money, you can make your own elderberry syrup. And I don't think that we should be judging if that's what's available to somebody. I would rather have elderberry syrup with sugar in it than have no elderberry syrup. Yeah, right. So the point here is that there's situations in which our ideas around, you know, in this case, we've been spending 20 minutes now talking about sugar, but it could be other things, right? We have ideas uh, about fill in the blank substance, herb, you know, therapy, whatever, that wouldn't actually be appropriate in certain situations. And getting wrapped around the axle with this dogma of sugar is evil, um, or this herb can only be taken in this particular specific way because that absolutely maximizes your extraction of these key critical <laughs> phytoconstituents. Whew, okay. Oh, that one comes up all the time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that'll make you lose your adaptability, right? It'll make you um, miss uh, options or opportunities that could be really important. And they might be really important for you or they might be the only option available to somebody else, mm-hmm. right? You know, when I was first learning herbalism, Um, I was taught to make external preparations with rubbing alcohol and yeah and and I always whenever I talk about a liniment I always have to say when I say liniment I mean like a mixture of a tincture and an oil because some people mean making it make a topical preparation in something you should never put in your mouth like rubbing alcohol or kerosene or yeah Tommy Bass made them out of kerosene and he was a really good herbalist so 
Um, uh, he, there's a book about him, and I just I can't remember the name of it right now, but it does have Tommy Bass in the title. It's in the office. Um, but if you just Google Tommy Bass Herbalist Mountain book, Medicine, maybe yeah, something, something like, like that. that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But anyway, um, so you know, these days I think a lot of people turn their nose up at the prospect of making topical preparations with rubbing alcohol, and I certainly prefer to make topical preparations with um, drinking alcohol instead. Yeah. But again, um, if if you don't have enough alcohol for both, then making your external preparations with rubbing alcohol becomes an op- option worth considering. And it's just a million times cheaper. Well, that's right? what I mean. Like, whether this is an austere environment or whether you just don't have a lot of funding. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. Rubbing and alcohol I mean, is yeah, so much cheaper than drinking alcohol. Yeah. So, you know, if you're out there making tinctures and stuff and, you know, you're sharing your recipes on the internet and somebody yells at you and says, no, you should only ever use organic vodka. Like, say, I would love to, but I don't have that kind of money. You know? Yeah. Or it's not necessary for this preparation that I have in mind, right? I'm making something that's going to be to relieve this pain in my joint or kill athlete's foot or I don't know, whatever. And it doesn't have to be organic, yeah, <laughs> organic potato vodka for for that to work out. Yeah, it's just it's just a marker of privilege, and and everybody can, anybody can fall into it. And I want to say, like, so a lot of these are things that I've absolutely said earlier in my in my herbalist career. <laughs> like, no, you should never ever consume that. This should only be done this way. This is the this is the right way to do it, and there aren't others. Um, whether it's about food, or whether it's about movement styles, or whether it was about yeah. Like, just remember back when I was uh, really into that one specific martial arts and like, this is the best way to throw a punch. And like, wow, <laughs> really changed my mind about that one over the years. <laughs> so like, there, this happens. This happens to everybody. And if... I can, I can remember when I was young saying, I can't work with anyone who won't give me complete control over their food. Yeah. I mean, good Lord. <laughs> like, so, and later I realized like, what am I so... Do I lack so much creativity that I honestly can't do a single thing unless I have complete control? Like seriously but whatever yeah. like it happens to everyone yeah so if you're out there feeling a little seen and being like oh no i said that once I, I told somebody never to use sugar in the thing like don't worry it's okay we're all evolving together right we're getting yeah. somewhere um but we just want to point out that th- that there are some uh some side effects or some some action some things that come out of that kind of statement or or belief that are really problematic um for you and for other people that may need some help from you or could get some help from you. Yeah. Yeah. It could be a barrier. And so, you know, think about, think about your own thoughts. Think about your own ideas around what you do and what the right TM thing is to do. And then question those. And then we can all laugh about it together. Like, wow, look how dumb I was. Or look how wrapped up I was in that. And um, this is part of being human. It's just part of progressing. Right. And none of this is to say that there's there's not the wrong way to do a certain thing, right? Yeah. Like, let's see. Uh, if I'm trying to uh, do a steam with my with my uh, handful of Monarda or thyme leaf or something like that, uh, then there is a wrong way to do it, which would be to throw the herbs into the water and bring it to a boil and walk away for half an hour and then come back and then and then do my steam over that. Yeah, because by that point, you would waste all the most of the volatiles are going to have dissipated, and those are what's going to be doing the major work in that preparation. So you know, yeah, that's 
pretty much the wrong way to do that. <laughs> yeah. But on the other hand, if somebody just was told, do an herbal steam, use thyme, and they didn't really know exactly what that meant and they were trying, um, well, they tried. That's good. Like, we try things and they don't go right the first time, maybe. And then we try again. And that's okay. That's that's how we learn. So there are... There are... Uh, less effective ways to do things. There are good ways. There are better ways. There may be a perfect way, but we're not going to let that get in the way of the good one, there's the effective even, one, the there, one you have right now. There's even officially suboptimal ways. Like yeah. there are definitely, I, a Tommy Bass was amazing, but making a liniment in kerosene, I really think is suboptimal. <laughs> <laughs> but if my choice was I've got nothing else to work with and that I might, Go with it. I I mean, I'd have to know. I'd have to think about the situation and really think about, boy, would I really ever do that? But but that's. I think that's something that I need to think about because here I am criticizing something that this very famous herbalist did. And do I know all of the situation of the situ of the times that he did that? No. Um. So it's a good exercise for me to think about. Is there a time I would do that? Maybe. Yeah. And this applies to everything, really. I mean, we talk a lot about how it's good to get probiotics and get them not just from a pill, but from, yeah, fermented foods, sure, too, but also going out into nature and being in some healthy dirt and playing with your dog and rolling around on the ground and all of that stuff. Um, and that is good for you. And even, you know, to, like, not be too aggressive about washing your hands and putting antibacterial, <laughs> you know, triclosan into everything in the world. Like, mm. yeah, it's not, not pretty great and we're not into it. Uh, but none of that is to say that if we were, you know, um, going to go and help out at a climate refugee encampment mm -hmm. <laughs> at some point, that we wouldn't be really strict about sanitation because holy, it's important. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like, if there wasn't enough water for hand washing and there wasn't enough soap available, is that a situation in which I would consider using Purell? These Maybe. Are, yeah. These are not places where we're going to be like, oh, yeah, no, those germs are going to be good for you. Yeah. yeah. There's plenty of germs going around. This is not the situation of the over-sanitized city dweller, you know? Right. It's a really different context. Right. So sort of like letting that context um, guide your thinking about what is appropriate for that particular situation, given all the options that you have available... In that situation, if my choices were don't wash your hands and trust your immune system or use Purell, which I abhor, uh, I am pretty darn certain I would use Purell because because like that's that's more than just healthy stress on my immune system. That would be um, unhealthy stress on my immune system. Right. Yeah. So our ideas around health are context dependent. And clinging too tightly to rules about what is good and what is bad, that can really get us into trouble when our context changes. And it can also make it hard for us to communicate with people who are living in a very different context than our own. Yeah, I think that's exactly what I'm trying to say when, when I've said privilege a couple of times yeah, yeah, yeah. throughout this conversation is that just because your particular context is one thing doesn't mean that that's everybody's context. And in order for you to be helpful to all people or to as many people as possible, then you need to be as open to as many contexts as possible so that you can communicate effectively. Yeah, for sure. Well, hey, let's talk about another example of things that might surprise you. Um... Now, if you have taken our digestive health course, this might not seem 
super surprising. But if you haven't, um, <clears throat> one of my favorite examples of this is that vinegar is helpful for heartburn. Um, and you might be thinking, Katya, what on earth are you saying? That's so stupid. Everybody knows not to put acid on heartburn. Well, it, it might be reasonable for you to think that, but, but wait, let us consider. Yeah, so uh, a lot of the cases of heartburn are actually coming from deficient production of stomach acid rather than excess. And there are ways to sort that out, and we get into that in our classes and everything. Um, but uh, in, in a number of cases, um, taking some vinegar before a meal, it can boost up the amount of acid that's right there in your system. It can help to break down and, and uh, begin the process of digesting what you've ingested. And uh, then that has effects that cascade down the line and make it so you're less likely to have heartburn going forward. Yeah. So that's pretty great. Um, so, you know, there are, there are limitations to this. Like if you're actively having a lot of heartburn now and there's a lot of irritation going on in your esophagus, then, you know, you swallow the vinegar and you feel burning all the way down and that's, that's not fun. But if it's a more transient thing and, you know, it happens after, um, uh, after you eat a meal or something like that, then, yeah, having the vinegar there, that can help. That can help a lot. Kind of like in a prophylactic sort of way or like a plan ahead kind of way. Yeah. I, and actually, if you're a person who this works for in a plan ahead sort of way, and then, uh, so here's a, a scenario in which we might do something totally counterintuitive. So you're a person for whom vinegar usually is helpful in a plan ahead sort of way. If you take vinegar before a meal, then you don't have heartburn. And if you forget to take vinegar before a meal, then you do experience heartburn. And you are someplace, you're out to dinner, you're whatever, and you can't take vinegar. But you know that vinegar is actually really helpful. Then maybe you decide, yes, I'm going to take a shot of vinegar right now. Maybe it's infused with herbs and whatever. And I know that's going to sting for a minute going down, but then I'm going to drink a whole thing of marshmallow root cold infusion to soothe that sting because I know that getting the acid down into my system to help break, digest that food is actually going to be the thing that stops the progression of the heartburn. It's going to like turn it off in this moment. Yeah. So it's worth it to have the sting for a minute going down because I also know that I'm prepared with something to soothe it right immediately afterwards. Sure. And I know that a lot of y'all listening to this podcast are herbalists or have some herbal, you know, training and experience already. Um, and this one may be one that you're actually familiar with. Mm -hmm. And you may be like, yeah, of course. Yeah, that's why we take bitters too. And you know, that stimulates acid production, but that's also helpful. Yeah, yeah, I get it. But try to remember the first time you heard that and the mental acrobatics you had to do to understand why adding acid to heartburn could actually be helpful. Yeah. Because it probably took a minute, right? And it probably didn't make any sense at first, and it contradicted things that you thought were, were true, and you had to kind of, like, hear more about it. You had to say, okay, what? Tell me about <laughs> that, you know? Yeah. Um, so that could apply to a lot of things. Yeah. Well, right. you know, actually, there are some ways to work with herbs that might surprise you. Um, especially because a couple of the herbs that I have in mind are herbs that you probably know really, really well. And these might be really surprising things that you would never have thought to do with these herbs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, let's start with something like peppermint. I, like an herb that everybody knows. Yeah. Yeah. It's all over the place, everywhere. 
Um, and, you know, often we're working with peppermint for some digestive relaxation or just because it tastes good, <laughs> you know, which is, which is valuable, totally reasonable. Um, but you may not have thought about peppermint as an antimicrobial herb. You may not have thought about peppermint as a potential wound wash. Yeah. Right? Uh, but I'll tell you, if you make a good, strong preparation of peppermint, like a nice, powerful infusion in there, lots of aromatics coming off of it, mm -hmm. uh, those aromatics, why does the plant produce them? To defend itself, to protect itself against microbial threat. Right, it's part of the plant's immune system. Yeah, and so you can put that onto you, and now temporarily it's part of your immune defenses too. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, in that same vein... Um, peppermint and really any of the smelly mints can work this way, uh, can help as an emergency water decontamination tool. Now, um, obviously I would prefer to boil water before I drink it. I would prefer to use like a life straw or some kind of, um, like filtration method that is guaranteed to get out all the different levels of whatever. But let's say that I'm in a situation where I don't have that. And the only water that is available is groundwater. And uh, so if that were the case, here's what I would do. I would filter that through a bandana or whatever so that I could get as many of the visible particles out as I possibly could. And then I would put mint right in it. Um, and the idea here is that the volatile oils in the mint will will help to fight off some of the pathogens that could be in that water, some of the microbes that could be in that water. Yeah, and you don't just like stuff them in there and then drink it right away. Right, no, we're <laughs> going to let it hang out for a while. Yeah. Tom, Tom Elpel demonstrated this in his uh, video series, The Art of Nothing. Yeah. Which is all about like, okay, what if you fall out of a plane or whatever? You find yourself wandering around in the wilderness. You literally don't have anything with you. Mm -hmm. uh, what can you do? You know? Yeah. And he's like, well, I found this discarded plastic bottle and I rinsed it out the best I could and put some water in there. Oh, look, there's some Monarda. Let's stuff some of that in, in there and shake it up and let it stay in there all day. And then later I'll have some water to drink. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, or maybe you only have enough water as a drinking resource and you don't have any as a um like washing resource then you would do this for your wash water you mm -hmm. know or whatever um and there are other ways to help too like if you now also add bitter herbs into the mix that's going to stimulate your own digestive defenses if you also add some astringent herbs into the mix that's going to stimulate um, a sort of tightening of the tight junctions in the guts to, um, you know, a lot of pathogens are larger than, um, than, than what digested, like fully digested food is. So um, if we close down the uh, pathways for absorption in the gut, so that it's small enough that only digested food can get through, then that's a protective measure against some pathogen that might be in the water. Yeah. So anyway, this it's... would not necessarily be my choice. Right, My yeah. first choice go-to to, to again, decontaminate water. Yeah, again, none of this is perfect. Right, <laughs> you know? right, right, right. It's totally suboptimal, but it would be better than nothing. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, rose petals, you can work with them actually in a really similar way, right? They have that astringent quality you were just talking about. Yeah. They can, they can really help if you make a good, strong you know, rose uh, decoction or infusion, you can use it as a wound wash. Absolutely. 
Nobody talks about rose petals as a digestive bitter. Mm. And yet... Yeah. And yet, it absolutely would. Especially if you were a person who does run really hot, and maybe your metabolism is too fast, and so you need a digestive bitter to to help you digest food better, but you don't want to amp the system up. Um, Rose is a cooling bitter, and it would be really, really effective. Yeah, for sure. I mean, plus the petals are just food. Yeah, you could eat like them. you can eat rose petals as a vegetable. Yeah, or a fruit. Which what what would they? They'd no, be vegetable. They'd be they vegetable totally because be, yeah. the, the they, rose hip is the fruit. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> um, hey, how about marshmallow? Once again, here's another super common herb, and we think about it. Yeah, it's got these digestive benefits, and it's good for when you have irritations and all of that. The mucus membranes and yeah, definitely. Uh, but also, it's a great wound wash. Are you sick of hearing that? We, yet? we have a theme going on yeah, here. Yeah, we totally do. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, marshmallow is an amazing vulnerary. It helps to encourage the healing of the wound. It's also um, a quorum sensing inhibitor, which means that it uh, makes it really difficult for bacteria to form a biofilm. Um, and, you know, that in turn makes it easier for your body to fight them off uh, and to deal with what's going on there. So marshmallow is like criminally underestimated in this regard. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because um, all of these have different like wonderful qualities and talents that we know about. But but all of my first thoughts on these were also, hey, a wound wash, hey, a wound wash. And basically, actually, any single plant. Right. Like if, if you have to wash a wound, any tea is better than water. Yeah. Wait. No, even cayenne. I was going to be like, yeah. no, maybe yeah, not cayenne. To, well, yeah. But maybe actually <laughs> even cayenne. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, like we're not inventing these. <laughs> right. These are these are things that we've picked up along the way or learned from other people. Or you know, especially when it comes to to plants uh, to be employed to help heal wounds or to prevent infection, um, that was a much bigger part of everyday herbal practice when people were getting more small, uh, you know, home manageable injuries in the course of their daily or lives. Or large home manageable injuries because people had to manage their own injuries. Yeah, if there's not a hospital then uh, yep. you're pretty much stuck. So, um, you know, this also makes me think about wine infusions in herbs. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, like through the through the wound care lens, um, you know, if you look back at the writings of somebody like Galen, for instance, uh, he had a lot of things to say about wound care, and probably that was because one of his first gigs as a practicing uh, herbalist, doctor, you know, practitioner was, here's a bunch of gladiators. We want you to keep them alive as long as you can. <laughs> yes. Pretty he, tough assignment, right? But He liked garlic in wine. Garlic infused wine, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, you know, but there's lots of lots of ways to infuse herbs in wine and this is one that we advocate for. We work with herb infused wines pretty frequently. Um, sometimes it's something real specific like blackberry root infused in a really tannin rich red wine. Uh, works better than straight up blackberry root tincture in vodka when you're trying to astringe the intestines and combat mm. diarrhea. Mm-hmm. Um, that one is a, a real keystone. But we like to work with wine infusions, and, and you really prefer them. I do. They have a lower alcohol content generally, but they do self-preserve. They are shelf-stable. Mm-hmm. We've we've tested it over and over again. Um, For years. But it's it's one of those things where every time we tell people that, they're like, are you sure? I'm pretty sure it's going to turn to vinegar on you. I'm okay, pretty you sure guys, it's going to go sour. No, I actually <laughs> have um, a, a half-gallon growler on the counter 
of three different infused white wines and they were all infused with very similar things like rose hips and goji berries and hawthorn berries. And I don't love white wine, but we made those all for classes. And so like I never quite got around to drinking them. And after the move, like I was like, oh, I shouldn't even move these. And then I was like, no, I shouldn't waste them. I'm going to move them. So I dumped, I strained them. I dumped them all into this half gallon jug and uh, they are literally more than two years old, like uh, of varying ages, but all of them are more than two years old. And that wine is still wine. It's not vinegar. It's not skunky. It's not whatever. Um, plus, yeah. it's got lots of vitamin C in it. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I mean, again, my, my thought here is that this is not a common practice amongst herbalists, at least in America, at least as far as I've seen today. Um, but historically, this was very common, especially if you go back to times when people didn't have distillation techniques to, in order to make right. vodka or to make, you know, whiskey or other, other yeah, things Yeah, all like we that. had was wine and mead. Right, right. Um, and so, you know, when we talk... beer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when, you know, when we talked about, about peppermint or about rose petal or marshmallow as, as wound washes and said, oh, this is uncommon, maybe you, know, maybe you haven't done this or thought about it, maybe some of our listeners out there are like, no, I've done that for a long time. My grandma taught me. We've done that forever, mm-hmm. right? That's a different cultural context. It's a different uh, you know, tradition of, of working with plants. And uh, again, like, the point here is to stay open to that, mm. to stay curious uh, if somebody says something that seems wrong to you, then investigate it, you know, think about it. If you can come up with a convincing rationale for why it wouldn't work out or wouldn't make sense, then propose that. Have an actual conversation, you yeah. know. Um, a a and, respectful one. Right, and then see if there's something that you weren't considering, uh, whether that's the context people are working in, whether it's that it's just an application you never considered before, but there are actually great reasons for it, um, or, you know, something entirely beyond that. And I mean, sometimes, sometimes um, things are wrong. Yeah. Like sometimes people are saying things and it's like, uh, no, that's completely baseless. That I don't want to say that nobody is ever saying things that aren't wrong. Yeah. Just that, especially if it's somebody that you trust, especially it's some, if it's somebody who clearly is qualified or clearly like has studied or whatever, give it a minute of open thinking before you just throw it right out because you might learn something cool and new. And even if the end result that you come up with is, no, I actually, I thought about it, I did some research and I still don't think that's valid. That's good too, the experience of doing that research, the experience of staying open um, and going through the full thought process before you make a decision is really important. Yeah. Yeah, and that includes when you encounter people saying things that uh, contradict what we teach you. Yes, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. We so don't not... write it off just because Rin and Katja would never say that. It must be wrong. Uh, <laughs> or whoever, whoever your teachers are or whatever you, you feel like you already know. Uh, but just think about, oh, that's different from what I've heard before. I wonder what's going on. Let me think yeah. about that. Let me talk about that. Let's, let's see what's really happening here. Uh, because maybe you do know the perfect method. And maybe this other one is just good or just passable. Uh, <laughs> but that doesn't mean that we want to write it off entirely. Yeah. All right. So that's our that's our that's our rant for this week. <laughs> this <laughs> it was a little ranty. So much of I mean, yeah, just a little bit. Just a little bit there a little, in the little beginning. Bit, yeah. <laughs> but, hey, uh, but we have some shout outs. Yeah, let's get them. So first one is to Don, who loves the podcast. Hey, we do too. Uh, and who tried out our free online course, Four Keys to 
holistic herbalism. And we're now brainstorming ideas to help support better sleep for her together. Yeah, which is really exciting. Um, All of our courses have a lot of ways to get into direct contact with us. So when you have questions, or even if the question is, I'm not sure how to best apply this to my life because I'm really busy and I I just can't see a way to do it, um, then we're happy to brainstorm that with you. So that's pretty exciting. Yeah, for sure. We have a shout out to Catherine A. And her, it's got Catherine with an R-Y in it. So whenever I see that, I'm like, oh, look. <laughs> <laughs> it's like people took both of our names and put them together. It kind of is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so to Catherine and her daughter, uh, she was saying that her daughter says that listening, to, she really said this, that listening she to the really podcast did. is like being encouraged by a sweet friend. Wow. Yeah. My heart was literally going to pop when I read that. <laughs> I, I mean, that is what we really want to be putting out there. We mm-hmm. want... We do this work because we want to lift people up. We want to do something positive and helpful. And I feel so excited when it comes through that way and people say so. Because we're by no means perfect at it, but if we can occasionally be good, (laughs) then that's all right. Yeah. Yeah. And also Mama Kadio and her daughter were listening to the pod while making dinner. Um, So I think it's like mother-daughter week here at the Holistic Herbalism Podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, shout out to Kim, who's been learning to make herbal incense. Which is really cool. And one of these days, I want to learn to do that, too. That's cool. Yeah, I haven't really done that much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, shout out to Carrie, or maybe it's Kari, who left us a review on Apple Podcasts. Hey, thank you. That helps other people find the pod. So if you're a person with thumbs uh, <laughs> or other means of inputting text into the internet... <laughs> could be, I don't know, lots of ways to do that. Yeah. Uh, then uh, we would really love it if you'd leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or I don't know if Spotify does reviews or really basically anywhere you listen if there's a review function. Yeah. Please please go ahead and type in a few, a few words, a few thoughts there. We do read all of them. We do think about them, even the critical ones. We, we pause. We think. We're like... All right, maybe they've got something real going on here. There maybe aren't I very do it many critical ones, but one of them said that I interrupt you too much. And for like months afterwards. You were. You were very... Yes. I was like, did I interrupt you? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But anyway, yeah, we we do read them. We we appreciate the lovely things that you say about us. And it also does help other people to find the podcast and to get a sense of what we're about. Because, you know, we're not everybody's favorite. uh, But if they can read a review from someone who listened, then they can figure out if we are. And then they can listen for themselves. Everybody speaks a different language. And... We can't speak all the languages, but, you know, we want to be as helpful and as positive as we can for as many people as possible. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks very much. And thanks, as always, to our podcast supporters. We Uh, love you. Yeah. If you'd like to be a supporter of our podcast and receive brand new, only for supporters, video content delivered right to your inbox every week as a thank you gift, then uh, head on over to commonwealthherbs.com slash supporters, and you can sign up right there. We are so grateful to all of our supporters who make funding this podcast possible and who also um, sustain our community service programs. So thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. And uh, thanks to every other listener as well. Yes. We really appreciate you spending some time with our voices in your ears Uh, in the middle of all of the other things you needed to get done today. Yes. So thanks for listening. And go out there and question things you think you know. Yeah. Yeah. We'll be back next time. Bye-bye.